This is the first Sunday of the new year, and historically, as Susan mentioned earlier, um, this is referred to as the the first Sunday of the Epiphany. And Epiphany uh, means um, the moment when your eyes are opened, the moment when there is an understanding, the moment when the veil is is lifted and you come to a realization that you hadn't yet seen before. And, and uh, there are many, many texts throughout the scriptures that are, uh, that are um, pointing to um, God's grace going to all nations. And so historically, the text that is often turned to this first Sunday of the New Year is Matthew chapter 2, which is our text for today, where the epiphany comes to the wise men, those magi, who were looking uh, to the stars, and God puts the new star in the sky and uh, draws their attention to this. And it's a picture of God revealing himself to not just one nation, but the nations. And so uh, we're going to look at Matthew 2 this morning as uh, the text where the, the familiar text for many, where the magi bring the gifts to Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, Paul, Christmas is over. You know, this is. It's over. Um, got a clock and a calendar. Um, why are we going back here? And that's because uh, nativity sets are very misleading because they put the wise men with Jesus at the manger and it's a very confusing timeline like the X-Men franchise. That's not actually how it played out. There was the text we're about to read today that is it takes place two years after uh, the, the birth of, of Christ and that's when they arrived. And so th- some of the nativities... Uh, they're very unhelpful. It's either the, the timeline or some nativity sets have the little drummer boy is present there. I'm not sure why. Maybe there were royalties involved. Other nativity sets have Santa bowing down, giving gifts to Jesus, which is super cute, but it's like a weird multiverse crossover. Santa's a lot of fun. He should stay in his lane, though. And there's never nativity sets that have dragons, but they all should have dragons because Re- Revelation 12 tells us there should be a dragon there. Um, you've got all of these kind of problematic things about nativities that make this text in Matthew 2 that's supposed to be amazing to us either weirdly familiar or, or, or forgettable. And maybe the most you know, inexplicable nativity faux pas would be this culturally inexplainable situation where you have a fair-skinned, blonde-haired Jesus. And uh, you know that is super interesting. We were shopping before Christmas and I was like, come on, Costco, you know, learn your Christmas lore. And you've got this, and I'm treading softly because there are a lot of very cute, blonde-haired, fair-skinned babies in this church. Your babies are very cute. I'm not saying your babies aren't very cute. What I'm saying is, if your nativity set, you look at Jesus and remind you of, you know, Lars, Hendrika, and Conrad, you done bought the wrong nativity set. That's what I'm saying. And so... This text takes place two years after the birth of Christ, and for those of you who may be exploring Christian faith, they give you a broader picture of world history at the time. Alexander the Great moved 35,000-ish troops from Macedonia to India, and at the tip of the sword, uh, created this massive ancient empire. And the way that he united that empire was through language, which is the term, he Hellenized the ancient world, which is why uh, they all spoke a very basic form of Greek called Koine Greek, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek, right? Even though Jesus, of course, and his disciples, they were Jews, but the New Testament was written in Greek because Alexander the Great had Hellenized the ancient world. So this is what, ta- this is what happens. So this text we're about to read takes place at the beginning of Matthew, the last book of the, of the Old Testament 
uh, scriptures is Malachi. And between Malachi and Matthew, it's 400 years of silence. 400 years of silent nights where God did not speak because his children had been rebellious for millennia. In his great grace, he was moving to redeem and to save. But there is this period of time, this period of darkness, where God did not speak, and the voice of God was not heard until the babe cried in the manger that first Christmas day. And so it's at this point that we consider the world that Jesus was born into. It was politically oppressed, and it was economically strained, and it was racially charged, and socially volatile. Right? Uh, Alexander the Great was educated by Aristotle, so he was intelligent. He idolized Zeus, so he was power-hungry. And his father was murdered when he was young, so he's bloodthirsty. And, and so it's into this very volatile place where after his death, it gave rise to the Roman Empire that now the Christ child is born. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, all of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. <clears throat> and he had sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest in the place where the child was. And so when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. <clears throat> As we work our way through this text this morning, we're going to look at three things. The clash of thrones, the epiphany of grace, and the ministry of reconciliation. Now first, the clash of thrones. Now this is, I know it sounds like a game for the Nintendo Switch, but what I mean by this clash of thrones is the reaction that happens when the news that a king is born and that, that reaction there's these two significant different uh, reactions to look at the magi who worshiped at Christ's throne and Herod who protected his the magi who bent their knee to Christ's lordship and Herod who rejected Christ to maintain his own lordship and those two responses are really the only two responses to Christ. As you work through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you find Jesus continually presenting himself as God, presenting himself as the King, provoking one of these two responses, crown me or kill me. And it's at this clash of thrones that, that the story picks up here. And, and when you look at verse 2, it says that the Magi asked Herod a terrifying question. 
They asked him, where's the, born, where's the one born king? So when you go to the king, and you look into the eye of the king, and you ask the question, where's the king? It infers that the one you're looking to is not the king. And so it is this threatening moment. You can't get more political than this. Right? Sometimes, for uh, fear of con- controversy and discussion, people will say, um, you know, the Bible isn't political, we shouldn't be political, uh, our faith isn't political, we shouldn't be political. And that is true if you're talking about partisanship and saying all Christians should belong to party X. In that sense, absolutely throw it all away. But the Bible has always been very political and in the sense that if there is a king, there is a kingdom. If there is a king, there is the king's way of thinking and believing and acting and living and loving and flourishing. And so you get these two, two responses. The Magi worship Christ as Lord. Herod is threatened by Christ because he's his own Lord. When you look at verses 3 to 6, <coughs> it says that Herod is terrified and all Jerusalem with him. So historians, um, for example, Dr. Craig uh, Blomberg, fantastic New, New Testament historian, D.A. Carson, another one, they um, will say that the all Jerusalem is referring to all of, the, all of those in power that Herod had put in power, Herod himself receiving his power from Rome. So it's like everybody who is in positions of authority are terrified. And the terrified here in the Greek is not like a phobia, like I'm afraid of spiders. The terrified in, in the Greek is the word um, etarakthe, which means to have an inner crippling anxiety. So why do all of the leaders have, they hear of the king, and their response is inner crippling anxiety. It is this absolute dread of losing power. It is the absolute dread of losing control. And as Susan mentioned earlier in the liturgy, how of course there's the massacre of the innocents because of Herod's paranoia. It is astounding the things we will justify when we have to maintain power, maintain control. It is astounding the things that we can justify when we have to reject Christ's throne to propagate our own throne. Um, again, borrowing from Dr. Blomberg, the historian, you know, they, assume, they estimate that Bethlehem in the ancient world had around a, a population of around 1,000, which means that Herod had uh, heartlessly massacred, uh, they estimate, around 20 children that would have fit into that um, age demographic. And that is horrifying, and that is actually a minimal death count for Herod. This is how tragic this whole situation is. The, the clash of the thrones is so insane. The, the need to keep power was so insane he could justify absolutely anything. In fact, he, he often had disputes with Caesar Augustus, another historical figure that you find mentioned in, the, in uh, Luke's Gospel. And actually, Augustus uttered this famous phrase about Herod, using a play on words. He used to say, you know what? It's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Because pig in Greek is heis, and son in Greek is quios. He used to say, it's safer to be Herod's, Herod's pig than Herod's son, because the pig isn't in line for the throne. That was the way that Caesar Augustus talked about, the paranoia of the one who had to propagate and maintain the, his, his power. And of course, as we look on the surface here, absolutely none of us are like Herod, right? We look at this and go, this guy's terrible, and none of us are like that. Well, what my... Um, Dr. Brian Chappell was the professor of homiletics at Knox. He, he was my, pre, my 
uh, professor teaching us to preach, and he used to say, we always have to look at the text with what you call a common, fo- uh, uh, a fallen condition focus, meaning what does it mean in the original context, but then how do we as modern readers look back on this in a meaningful way? And one of the ways that we do that is we look and say, how is it that I am capable of what I'm, of the kinds of sin that I'm looking at? How am I guilty, perhaps, of the kind of sin I'm looking at? And how has God in his great grace in Christ forgiven me of that sin? And then, therefore, how do I now live in light of that? So when we look at Herod, we like, we're nothing like this guy. But, you know, underneath Herod's sin is the same thing that was under Adam's sin, and it's the same thing that's under my sin, and it's the same thing that's under your sin, and it's called self-rule. That's the OG sin from Genesis 3, self-rule. And it manifests in a thousand different ways, and it's not going to manifest in our life the way it manifested in Herod's. But underneath it, we're grappling. There is a clash of thrones. Right? The driving force behind every selfish or unloving, hurtful, oppressive, unjust, unmerciful act, not only in the world, but the things that we do, the driving force underneath it is the ego coronated as king. And so... Think of what it is to be uh, alive today in 2020 here in, in North America, what it is to think of some of the things that we have coronated to the throne that are so uh, precious to us. Things like, don't you dare tell me that what I think or what I feel or what I do is wrong. Because if I think it and I feel it, and I want it, and I choose it, it's right, because I'm the king. I have granted my ego executive powers, and nobody dare tell me. Not you, not you, no God tell me that what I think, what I want, what I choose is wrong, because I'm the king. It's the clash of thrones. And so, on Christmas holidays, my own heart and mind was dealing with this clash of thrones. You know, family is fun, right? Family's amazing. It's a paradox. It's, it's, it's beautiful and terrible and wonderful and hard. And it's, the whole mix is there. And so I was having many selfish moments these past holidays where I was grappling with how to handle different dynamics in my extended family. And there was a number of occasions where Susan would say to me, She's like, Paul, you know, if you're going to make a mistake here, err on the side of love. And of course, my response was, bless you, Susan, you're a gift. That's precisely what I should do. Because you know I'm a good pastor, and I'm a very mature and sanctified person. That's how I responded to her. And that was also a joke. But (laughs) the clash of thrones. Christ the king. And then me the king. And then there's this confrontation. And that's the tale as old as time. Now, um, it's not hard to find examples in, in political podiums or religious pulpits where power is abused, where there's a clash of throne and, and the power is abused. It's not difficult to find it because, of course, if your goal is, if your mind and heart is predominantly consumed with keeping power, 
that it's going to be very easy and very tempting to abuse that power to control those whom you're supposed to be loving and caring for and governing or pastoring or serving. It's not difficult to, to think about that, about how easy it is to find examples of people who keep people under their control and then they build teams around them to borrow from Plato and his Republic. He would say, you know, the tyrant will, will sleep with everyone who loves them and kill anyone who dare challenge them. And so it's not difficult to think of examples where this has happened, where they then surround themselves with people who will propagate their power, justify their abusive power so that they can maintain their power. Why? Because all of these people rallying around the injustice are also trying to keep their jobs and their power. Whether it's a political podium or a dysfunctional church pulpit, it's the same thing. We can think of those examples. But now I want you to dial that back down to our own hearts and lives when there's the clash of thrones to consider how easy it is for us to do the precisely the same thing, to look for family and friends who predominantly function like an echo chamber so that all of the things that we think and feel and want, we make sure that those that are closest to us and around us and speaking to our, in our lives think and feel the same way to help us propagate what it is that we do. What is our response really when we're confronted with, with, with the idea of a king, that there is a king and that the king is not us? Do we turn to Christ's throne? When we are convicted of our sin, right? Many of us here this morning, most of us here this morning, we're Christians. We've placed our faith in Christ. Our sin is gone in Jesus. His grace was enough, period, full stop. And so then, how then do we respond when we are, when we are convicted of our, of our sin, when God's word convicts us of our sin? Do we bend our knee to Christ's throne? Or do we try to clamor to remain, to keep power at our own throne? In those moments when we grant our egos executive powers, right, we conveniently dismiss the guidance of God's word in favor of our own word so we can justify what it is that we already think. So, like Herod, we reject Christ as king. We might not deny Christ, but we'll dethrone him in those moments. And so this rejection of Christ at the beginning of his life, it foreshadows the rejection of Christ at the end of his life. So let's move on to the next thing from this clash of thrones to this epiphany of grace. When you look at verse 1, these magi, these wise men come. This is a group of political advisors and rulers, and uh, some historians assert that some of them may have been priests, these pagan priests from the region, you know, kind of surrounding Persia. Persia. They're, they're called wise men because they combined astronomical observation with astrological speculation and uh, so they were people of you know tremendous intelligence and prominence and power in their land but you know despite all of their intelligence and all of their power and all of their prominence they bow down and they worship Jesus in other words they were unlikely worshipers they were far from God but they were given this epiphany of the saving grace of God. And God drawing these unlikely worshipers is a picture of his grace being extended to every nation. Not a certain nation, every nation. Not a certain kind of person, every kind of person. Any kind of person. This epiphany, it refers to this, that moment of becoming conscious of something, being aware of something. Right? What happened to these magi, this is the gospel pattern. Right? God coming to us, in spite of us. Right? Revealing himself to us, rescuing us, renewing us, reorienting us. You look at verse 2. They say, we've come to worship him. And worship is what happens 
When God draws you by his grace and you come down off the throne of your own smallness and you find rest and strength and, you know, that soul-quieting peace you were craving as you marvel at God's greatness. And so when you get to verse 11, they give him these gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. These astounding symbols. You know, Jesus is two years old. He's a toddler. You know, he's not sitting there for this, right? He's running around. Who knows what Jesus is doing? And they bring these majestic, symbolic gifts to, to the Christ child. The gold, which is the medal of kings. It's, it's asserting, signifying, acknowledging Christ's kingship. The frankincense, the incense that priests would burn. Right? It is this acknowledgement of, of Christ's deity and that he is the high priest, the great high priest. He's the king. He's the priest. The great high priest, the one that was, uh, that was uh, prophesied about. And then there's this gift of myrrh. And myrrh was used for embalming dead bodies. And that is an odd shower present, if I'm honest. You know? It's not the kind of thing... It's like, ooh, you just brought down the room. You had a baby shower and little bibs and things or booties are being given out. And I brought some myrrh to embalm your child when it dies. Wow. But it's a significant gift. And it's important because it prophetically points to the mission of this king. The king who came to die. The king whose, it, the king whose mission it was to not accrue power, but to lay down power. The only king in history who would expand his kingdom, not by shedding others' blood, but by the shedding of his own blood. This beautiful gospel picture that Christ's perfect life and his atoning death and his resurrection for us signified even in, these, even in this encounter and even in these gifts, the goodness of his gospel, the one who came to take away the sin of the world, and so this worship, we have, they say, we've come to worship him. And you and I gather every Sunday. We come to worship him. And this worship is not just singing, which is why as often as I can remember, I actually refer to the team as the music team. And I actually refer to them as the, and I refer to as music ministry, as often as I can remember. Because I don't want to reinforce the idea that worship is while you're singing. Which again, speaking to the Faith and Work miniseries that we're doing, our life is worship, which includes singing the songs of deliverance. But our life, everything that we're doing, it is worship. The wise men came, they said, we've come to worship him. Now listen, worship is living to the glory of something. The wise men are like, we've come to bend our knee to live to the glory of something else. Not our own glory. Worship is living to the glory of something. Orienting your life around something. Defining yourself by something. Finding your identity. Looking in the mirror and answering the question, who am I? And the answer to who you are is, is, the, is your worship. It is the orientation of your life. It is the orientation of your personhood. It is the fundamental driving force underneath all of the decisions that you make when you go to work in terms of how am I going to relate to this situation and this person? How do I come in here and give dignity to everyone at all levels? How is it that I be a blessing in the city in practical ways? How do we come into this corporate worship gathering on Sunday mornings and live with a sense of love and care for neighbor? Worship is the driving 
Worship, our worship is what drives all of this. And so when the Magi left the house of Jesus, their worship continued. And when we leave this house of worship on Sunday mornings, our worship continues. They continue to function as rulers and advisors. And they use their gifts to bless the city. But now, they're doing it to the glory of their king. But now, they're looking through all of the scriptures now, from Genesis to Malachi, to reorient their way of thinking and being and living and acting and ruling and, ruling and functioning in those Persian courts. And now there's now a radical reorientation happening because the worship wasn't just that moment when they, when they put the three gifts down and left. This is a life orientation of worship. And when you and I leave and we go to our respective vocations and our campuses or we're raising our children, we're using our gifts to bless others we're using our lives to live in worship to the glory of our king. We have had the epiphany of grace. When you have the epiphany of grace, when you have the epiphany of the gospel, that all of your sin is forgiven, period, full stop, in Jesus Christ, that eternity is real, full stop, in Jesus Christ, that this life is simply not all there is, but the rest restoration of all things. We don't just sit by idly and say, oh good, well then, we'll just be idle bystanders. We'll just huddle in our church. We'll just live inside KW Redeemer and we'll just kind of live in here and we'll just wait for that. No. The, our worship reorients the way in which we engage in the darkness and the brokenness and the fragility and the worry and the restlessness of this world. Which leads to the third thing, the ministry of reconciliation. You see, these magi were unlikely worshipers. You and I are unlikely worshipers. And the magi weren't looking for God's grace. God's grace came to them. God went to cosmic lengths. He put the new star in the sky to draw them to his grace. You and I weren't looking for God's grace. You and I responded. So the moment in your life when you started looking and questioning and drawing and seeking is because some conversation providentially, someone that God had brought in some intersection in your life had begun to draw you to the goodness of His grace. And so we are unlikely worshipers. This room represents a hundred different stories of how God draws unlikely worshipers by His grace. And the reason why I'm reinforcing this is that you and I aren't here because we deserve to be here or we're smarter than our neighbor and that's why we're here or we're more humble than our neighbor and that's why we're here or we're more sensitive to spiritual things and that's why we're here or we had an easier time reconciling uh, reason and faith and seeing that they were actually friends and we could do that but our neighbor can't do that and that's... No, no, we're, that's not why we're here. We're unlikely worshipers and we must see ourselves that way because that is what gives us the boldness to go into the city with humility in our hearts and give a defense for the hope and share the gospel. Because we have been given this ministry as unlikely worshipers to go out and to share the goodness of God's grace so that by his great grace, he will draw other unlikely worshipers to his grace. And it's not, it's a, it's not our uh, responsibility or the weight to bear for us to sort of decide who the likely worshipers in our lives are but that just by God's great grace to love them and to have an, a, an orientation towards them and look for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And so, <clears throat> in the same way, 
that the Magi were unlikely worshipers, we have been sent now that God by his grace would do the same. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21, we get this language of the ministry of reconciliation. That text says that we have received reconciliation and now we go out as ministers of it so that through us, the church, God would continue to do his work and his ministry of reconciliation. And so... God continues to do his work in the world, only he's sending a different light. It's not a star in the sky. Now it's us. And you may say, oh boy. The church is a bit of a mess, though, is it not? Yes. Yes, we are. We're his beloved mess. You see, the good news is we are not the message. We are not pointing to ourselves. The star in the sky was not pointing to itself anymore that the church should point to itself or talk about itself. We are not the message. We are not the good news. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And so we go and we just simply share the goodness of the one who has saved us, this glorious epiphany of grace that we enjoy. Matthew chapter 5 describes it as going out as salt and as light. And how many of you go out to your friends and you enjoy a great meal together and you're like, oh my goodness, and you take a bite, mm, man, and you just rave about the salt, oh, this salt, have you ever had such good salt? No, I've never had it. Man, you got to try this restaurant on King Street, it's the best salt in the city. Nobody brags about salt, talks about salt, you just forget about the salt because the salt isn't the point. The salt is bringing out the glorious flavor of something else. The salt, is, the salt is simply drawing your attention to the actual thing. And we're sent out as salt. We're sent out as salt and light. And you're walking at night in Europe. Imagine it. You're on a street. And there are these glorious buildings with this just mind-blowing architecture being lit up at night. Nobody goes, whoa, and pulls out the phone. I got to take a picture of this. And they zoom in on the spotlight. Come here, look at this spotlight. It's incredible. Let's all stare at it. Ah, oh, ooh, it's burning my retina out, but we get it's just amazing. That's not the point. The light's not the point. Pointing to something else. So, yes, beloved mess, we are the ones. Oh man, I feel so underqualified to do that. Join the club. We're not the message, we're the unlikely worshipers. God is the one who, by his great grace, in the same way that he drew us, he will draw others. Right? This ministry of reconciliation is not the church pointing to itself. Look how put together I am. Look at how restored I am. And I am not minimizing testimony to pull back from my Pentecostal archives. God does take your mess and give you a message. Can I have an amen this morning? Come on, Presbyterians. You can do better than that. That was pathetic. He does take your mess. And give you a message. He does do that. He does give us testimonies. But we're, we're still not the thing. Right? When you read through the New Testament, every single book doesn't start with, there I was on the Damascus Road. 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 Thirteen epistles later, there I was on the Damascus Road. Paul's not like chronically going around telling his story. Paul's not like, check out my Instagram account. I'm like such an influencer for the kingdom. It's unbelievable. If people would just f follow me as I follow Christ on my gram, they would probably come to my church. No, this is not, that's ridiculous. We've been given this ministry of recreation, uh, of recreation. Wow, no, that's a, that's a sermon for another day. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation 
to point to the goodness of the one who saved us in grace. And so we are not the saviors of the world, and neither are we passive observers in the world. We are active participants in God's mission and what he is doing as he, by his great grace, draws people to rest in the world. We are active participants in that. In, in so much as a, chi- you know, a child stirs a spoon a couple times and they say, I helped make dinner. Did they? They did. And yet, the parent bought the house, bought the stuff, bought the kitchen, bought the ingredients, bought everything, put it in a bowl, mixed it, did all of the work, put it in the thing, put the stool up, picked the child up, put the child on this thing, grabbed the child's hand, put it on the spoon, showed them how to do it, and then guided their hand, and then let it go, and then the child stirred three times and said, I helped make dinner. That's you and me doing ministry in Kitchener-Waterloo. Got the picture? We are active participants in the radical ministry of saving grace that God is doing through Jesus Christ, of which he has always done. And so we, we, we just we go out in, to bless the city in ordinary, practical ways, whether it's a boardroom or a meeting room or your locker room or your classroom or whatever context you happen to be in, in just beautiful, ordinary ways of loving and caring and then looking for those ways to share uh, the gospel the goodness of that epiphany of grace that we enjoy in Jesus Christ and why is our hope and why is our rest. And to love and care the city, care for the city, you know, it's so ordinary, church. And it starts right here in this room of just getting outside of ourselves to care enough, to love enough, to, 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 to love those that are around us and serve in ordinary ways. You know, after the service, many are going to be making the, uh, uh, those sandwiches. That we, and every Sunday... I go to the shelter with Nigel at 9 o'clock at night, which is when they open it. We drop the sandwiches off. And every, every week I've been bringing the sandwiches you've been making. And we kind of go in, and it's pretty uneventful. You go in, you say hello, you say hi to people. You put the sandwiches in the kitchen, and, and, and you kind of leave. And there's, there's usually 20 to 30 folks who are out on the streets, and they're in there, and they say thank you. And you kind of leave, and it's very ordinary. Last week I went, and when I got there, we walked in, and we didn't know this. They told us after, but they had only six sandwiches left, and they didn't want to take them out of the kitchen because that would have created a huge problem. Probably about 30 people there, six sandwiches. And, uh, and Nigel and I knock on the door, and Nigel comes in. Where he's got the sandwiches, the basket of sandwiches, and when we walk in with the sandwiches, the, this, somebody yells out, and God said, let there be sandwiches! And they all cheered. It was like a Disney movie. Even as I'm describing it to you, it sounds totally fake. But that happened. And we walked to the kitchen and said, yay, sandwiches, yay! And uh, ordinary, regular ways of just loving and caring for the city. And you and I have opportunities in our life regularly to just be these ministers of grace. And not just in those ordinary uh, ways, but also in those beautiful moments where we can share Christ you know, this, our, our God loved us so much that he came into the darkness and the unsanitary mess of a manger. And that's why we know he will never leave us in seasons of darkness or the unsanitary mess of our lives. And so with this confidence, we go into the city as unlike, unlikely worshipers. Let's pray.